The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg, and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com/forward/slash/subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, joining you today from beautiful Lisbon, Portugal, and as always, we are joined by China Global South's managing editor Kobus van Staden, who is in lovely Cape Town, South Africa, this afternoon. Hello, it's so nice to be here. Happy New Year! This is our first China Global South episode of the year. Very exciting for us to get started, Kobus. Today we're going to be talking about China South America relations, China Latin America relations. It's a show actually that I wanted to do last year in December, but we had to keep pushing it off simply because there was so much big news that was happening. It was going to unfold, and I was worried that if we did the show in December, it would be dated. Within a week, because so many big things are happening that we're going to run through today. It's interesting, Cobus, because the Americas is one of those regions that doesn't get anywhere near the attention that it deserves when we're talking about the Chinese. There's been a lot of focus in recent months on what the Chinese are doing in Central Asia. We had the whole Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit that was. Xi Jinping's first venture outside of China, where he went. We've been talking a lot about Southeast Asia, obviously, and that's always going to be a paramount concern for the Chinese. Lots, of course, in Africa, and then the Middle East, where Xi Jinping went to Saudi Arabia in December. But it's interesting, Kobus, because despite the fact that very little is discussed and it's not covered very much in the press, I contend that the China-America's relationship is by far. One of the top three most important in the world for the Chinese, beyond just the geopolitics of the fact that it's in the United States's traditional sphere of influence. The fact is now that I think it's every South American country now has its largest trading partner in China. The fact is that the Chinese are sourcing strategic minerals from the Americas, food, energy. And then there's the Taiwan question that plays out in the Caribbean and Central America. So it's interesting, Kobus. You and I focus a lot on Africa, but the trading relationship between the Americas and China is about twice as large as what they're doing with Africa. Yes, the political relationship with Africa is, is obviously very prominent, but in the case of South America, it's also backed up by this massive kind of trade heft. You know, particularly these huge economies like Brazil, Argentina, and Mexico, where the complicated politics of the region and the way that that China is kind of making its way there then overlap with these huge economic interests in fields like particularly agricultural trade and also emerging fields like lithium. You know, so it makes for a very interesting kind of mix of factors. And the fact that it's all then happening, you know, kind of in what America considers or what the United States considers as its traditional kind of sphere of influence, makes it even more complicated. Well, what I'd like to do today is to do a survey of some of the major countries and the major events that have happened in, say, the past six to twelve months. In the China-America's relationship, and there is really no better person for us to help us guide our way through this very complex relationship than Pepe Zhang, who is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Adrian Arsht Latin American Center. And before he joined the Atlantic Council, Pepe also worked at the Inter-American Development Bank. Pepe, a very good morning to you, and Happy New Year in Washington D.C. It's great to finally have you on the show. 
Good morning, Eric and Kobus. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on the show. Very excited to kick off the new year with this episode with you guys. Happy to chat about Latin America and China and absolutely agree that I think this is one of the regions where Chinese engagement and behavior is being understudied and underappreciated in, in a global context. And of course, Happy New Year to you as well. And I would say that I'm very jealous that both of you are calling from much warmer locations. Pepe, great to have you on the show. Again, thanks for taking the time to join us. You're going to be our guide through the region. Let's start in Ecuador. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to delay our show from December into January, in part because they were at the final stages, the Chinese and the Ecuadorians, at reaching a free trade agreement. Then Guillermo Lasso, the president of Ecuador, announced on Twitter in 2023, and he said, quote, good news to start 2023, the free trade negotiations between China and Ecuador has been successfully concluded. So that is very, very important. China is, of course, one of Ecuador's main trading partners with bilateral trade at around $10 billion a year. Also, back in September, there was a very important development. China restructured about $3.2 billion of debt in Ecuador. And most importantly, and I'd like to get your take on this, they negotiated a deal that would allow Quito to sell more of its oil on the open market rather than to remain bound in these very tight oil-based contracts with Chinese lenders. So let's start in Ecuador, the free trade agreement. How important is that and what does it mean? Thanks, Sarah, again. And I think Ecuador is a great place to start and happy to share some of my uh, on-the-ground insight from my recent trip to Ecuador. I had the opportunity to participate in the uh, 15th China, Latin America, and the Caribbean China Lack Business Summit. And of course, FTA was at the front and center of that. Indeed, like you said, initially, the FTA was meant to be concluded by the end of the year. And in fact, and announced in the same conference that attended. And happy to talk more about the conference itself later. But there was a slight delay in the process. And it was the technical close came early this year, as you mentioned. Technically, it's not completely done because, you know, the FTA has to still go through the legal approval, has to go through the Congress. So I think this might take a bit longer. But at least the technical level, the ministries between China and Ecuador have reached the agreement, which is a big deal. And certainly this is a significant agreement for Ecuador. China has become officially its largest trading partner by the end of last year, a trend that we saw coming in recent years. And certainly, as Kobus also mentioned, we see across the region in, in the Latin America, Caribbean region for short. And I would say that the, the exciting part about this trade agreement, especially from an Ecuadorian perspective, is that it will allow Ecuadorian exporters to continue increase their position in the Chinese market. And specifically, for example, I was on a panel with the Vice Minister of Trade of Ecuador. And on that same panel, we had someone representing the shrimp exporting industry and fruits, which are some of the main categories or industries that would uh, that are eyeing the Chinese market. So certainly that's significant. And I think on the other side of the equation, when you look at the FTA, the President Lasso, Minister Brado and their negotiating team made it really clear that one priority is to ensure that domestic industries, to the extent possible in Ecuador, are protected or not adversely, overly or adversely impacted by this trade agreement. So that's another thing I'll say about the FTA itself. But something also very interesting I'd like to highlight, which you mentioned, which is, you know, this is not just about trade, right? We talked about the debt renegotiation and we talked about oil contracts. And I'll add one more thing, which President Lasso also mentioned in his inaugural speech in the same conference that we attended. Uh, it was also vaccines. You know, I think we're uh, fortunately in a world where we're kind of moving out from that phase of the pandemic. But certainly at the height of the pandemic, this was one of the most critical issues, you know, where our countries in the global south getting their vaccines from. And this is one example where I think China really got an upper hand right out of the gate. So I think it's a good place to start Ecuador when we look at this regional overview, a lot of different pieces going on between China and this country in particular. 
In addition to Ecuador, China also has bilateral free trade agreements with Chile, Peru and Colombia. And I was wondering what kind of lessons you think Ecuador should be taking from these earlier free trade agreements? Have they actually managed to to kind of boost trade and, and, and boost development? First, I think it's uh, Chile, Peru, and Costa Rica. These are the three countries that have current FTAs with China. Colombia at one point explored an FTA with China, and they got to, I believe, the feasibility study stage. But the political environment and specifically sentiments towards trade and FTA is really soured in Colombia. So there's no follow-up to that conversation. But yes, I mean, currently, uh, now, uh, if we're at, at Ecuador onto the list, then you know, China has four free trade agreements in the region. And I would say that the Ecuadorian authorities uh, certainly have learned lessons from the previous agreements. One thing we've seen in this agreement, and certainly something at the global level when it comes to trade agreements or any sort of trade deal with China, is that point I mentioned earlier. I think there's a growing kind of scrutiny and growing kind of intention to protect the mass industries from completely opening it up to powerful exporters like China. So that's certainly a big piece, I think, and a big lesson learned. And I think we'll continue to see that in this region as countries continue to engage China and, of course, at a global level. And this is no surprise, you know, we know this is a podcast about China Global South, but when when you look at advanced economies, how the US, how the EU and many other countries in the region, when they engage China economically, specific on the trade front, that is a central piece uh, and increasingly important. So that's the one thing I would say. On the other side, the main reason why a lot of these countries want to explore a free trade agreement with China in the first place is not super different from what Ecuador is trying to achieve to provide a major opportunity for its exporters. In the case of Ecuador, I, I name drops on specific industries that could benefit from this trade agreement. In the case of Chile and Peru, of course, very different products, but we can talk about, for example, copper. Chile is the biggest copper exporter in the world, and, and China is a massive part of that. China today, I believe, accounts for somewhere near 40% of total exports from Chile and Peru. That's a massive number. In the case of Brazil, I believe it's a little lower, maybe 30%, but of course, in terms of scale, that's a much larger economy. So even countries that do not currently have free trade agreements with China in the region, they have a robust trade relationship with China. And I think that's a centerpiece underpinning these relationships. And the other thing I'll say is that, and this will be the third takeaway here, is diversification of products. So in a case, specific case of Chile, the relationship kind of kicked off uh, on the back of very strong commodity complementarity, specifically copper, as I mentioned earlier. But over the years, the Chilean trade authorities and companies themselves, of course, have been able to successfully position their products, new products in the Chinese market. And a perfect example, two examples here are Chilean wine and Chilean cherries. Both products were relatively new in the Chinese market. I would say maybe, you know, that it really grew in the last uh, 10 to 15 years. But they really uh, now have a dominant position uh, in the Chinese market. Uh, the Chilean cherry is seen as the golden standard in China, especially with the Chinese New Year's coming along, I think in two weeks or so. The reddish color of the cherries is something that's uh, seen very positively in Chinese culture. And folks are uh, really, uh, it's, it's a very popular product in China. And Chilean wine, folks don't really know about that, but it's the country of origin, one of the best-selling countries of wine wine in China. So these are three takeaways that I'll mention from the FTA side, but certainly I think it's a trend to be watching. We know that in this current juncture, Uruguay is trying to unblock some of the challenges to advancing this negotiation with China on the trade front. We also knew at the end of last year that Nicaragua and El Salvador are two additional countries that are looking at this opportunity or similar opportunities on the trade front with China. Well, let's talk about Uruguay because that one is really one of the most interesting examples of what's going on now in the free trade arena after Ecuador. President Luis Lacalle is pushing ahead with a deal against the wishes of other members of the the Mercosur bloc that includes Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay going ahead with the free trade talks with the Chinese. Now, the concern from other Mercosur members is that they would be stronger if they negotiated as a bloc rather than to negotiate by 
bilaterally. It doesn't seem like President Lacalle is listening to his counterparts in the Mercosur bloc. Talk to us a little bit about the discussions and the tensions right now within Mercosur over Uruguay's conversations with China over free trade. For sure, Eric. And that's an excellent summary. I'll start off with a couple of points. One is that it's interesting that now at this point in time, we're talking about how the potential Uruguay-China negotiation and trade agreement would be a big thing after the China-Ecuador one. And it's interesting because the Uruguay process actually started much earlier. Initial conversations about free trade agreement started, I believe, in 2018. And I, maybe it was 2017. That was the last time I went to the, the China-Lac Business Summit. And that one was hosted by Uruguay. And that was under a different government. And I'll come back to this point in a little bit. So the process actually started quite early, but it hasn't been advancing uh, as fast as at least as the Uruguayan authorities had had wanted, and they continue to to, to sort out the Mercosur piece, which is uh, which is something that's very important. I'll come back to that point as well. But first point there is that this process has been going on for a while. There has been a lot of enthusiasm, and the Uruguayan authorities continue to work on that. But certainly, challenges remain on that front. Now, as promised, coming back to the two points that I mentioned earlier, one is the nonpartisan nature of the relationship with China from a Uruguayan perspective. Again, this is a country, China is uh, no surprise, Uruguay's biggest trading partner. Uruguay exports a lot of its beef and other products to China. And this trade relationship is very important from a Uruguayan perspective. So it comes as no surprise that China is a nonpartisan issue in Uruguay. This is something that, you know, doesn't matter which government, which political party is governing. They are interested in expanding its relationship in ways that benefits the exporters and, and its people. So the process started a while ago under a different government and President Lagaya under his administration, he officially started off this process. The feasibility studies has been done. There was some delay on that front as well. And now I believe they're waiting to kick off the official negotiation. And the main challenge there, it seems to be the Mercosur. And that's the third point I'll mention. And I, and I talked about that a little earlier. Mercosur as a bloc has this rule as exactly as you said, Eric, about whether or not it's a, basically its members not being able to negotiate bilateral trade agreements with countries outside the bloc. Certainly a lot of countries in the region, their position has been that Mercosur is stronger as a bloc and they should negotiate as one. Um, the counter argument, which is the argument that Uruguay has been using, and this is not a new argument. It's an argument used by countries in the bloc, including Brazil, including Argentina, in different points in time in the last 10, 15 years, is that, you know, if Mercosur as a bloc isn't ready to move on specific trade and opening agenda, then, you know, it shouldn't impede some of its members to start pursuing those. And in fact, Uruguay throughout this process has been telling Mercosur members that, you know, we're starting off this process with China with the goal that eventually, you know, China will want to be able to do something with Mercosur as a bloc. And they're very transparent by saying that, you know, the attractiveness of our market, Uruguay's an economy, is smaller when compared to much bigger, larger economies like Argentina and Brazil. So this is something that we are doing and we're piloting that eventually will be beneficial to larger countries in the region. But of course, for domestic political reasons in Argentina, Brazil, this hasn't been easy to accomplish. And the final point I'll make there is that in order to unblock this sort of a stalemate that we see regarding this particular point, when President Lula was inaugurated just a couple of weeks ago, heads of states from the region and from outside the region attended the inauguration ceremony and President Lagay from Uruguay in a, I think in another very impressive display of his political capacity, brought on two former presidents from his country to join inauguration. And I'm pretty sure that in one of his bilaterals with the new Brazilian government, he used that card to ensure that the China issue and the negotiation with China, this particular issue, is really not a partisan issue in Uruguay. This is something that we as a country want to continue to explore. Final point I relate to that, I'll say that, you know, also on Lula's inauguration that we saw Wang Qishan participating in person in the ceremony, and that was probably the first super high-level uh, senior Chinese official visiting the region since COVID started. And I think it's a sign of a basically Chinese economic engagement 
slowly returning to a pre-pandemic intensity. Yeah. So Wang Qishan, of course, is the former vice president. I think he's retired now, but he was very close to Xi Jinping and considered to be a really a special envoy uh, on behalf of uh, Xi Jinping when he goes abroad to events like this. Kobus, let me just get your quick take on what Pepe was talking about in terms of the, the trading as a block and the complexities when countries come together. And we're seeing that Mercosur, which is a much older block in many ways and much more mature block than one of the blocks we see in Africa, the regional blocks. Uh, but you're seeing this discussion we have in Africa about countries coming together to negotiate as a group with China. But you see it's complicated. And the Chinese don't necessarily foster that as they're doing in Mercosur. It's not healthy for Mercosur for China to have these bilateral talks with one of its members. Yes, I mean, it's interesting. We were reporting today in our newsletter that in preparation to President Lula's upcoming trip to China, there's been a lot of pressure from China to kickstart negotiations with Mercosur as a whole or with individual members, you know, kind of like that, that they were kind of like throwing both both options in, in into the discussion, you know, kind of and with the hope that there's going to be a lot of kind of trade discussion with Lula when he goes. I think there's a lot that Africa can learn from all of this, particularly as they themselves are moving towards the Africa continental free trade area. But Africa, of course, is so many countries compared to South America and particularly compared to Mercosur. That but I'm even talking about the regional blocks like ECOWAS or the East African community, SADC coming together more cohesively. But that doesn't always work as we're seeing with Mercosur. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, kind of one, like, in, you know, there's all of these kind of various domestic political issues, but there's also the, the challenge of coordinating development plans and economic growth plans, you know, across regions. Um, when a, in what we will see a lot in Africa is where, where individual states are actually in competition with each other. So, Beth, I was wondering, actually, like, what are some of the reservations that are holding back the Americas are actually moving forward with this as a block? Because I can imagine, you know, if they negotiate a free trade agreement with through with China as a bloc, it may well be powerful economically. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting to hear some of the similarities we see across different regions. But, you know, obviously the top line here is that, you know, bilateral negotiations, whether that's China or anyone else, it's much easier and less complicated than, you know, one that involves the entire trade block, and which obviously requires a coordination within the block itself. Megosul, by the way, is also, uh, as we speak, trying to, I think there's efforts to revive the uh, Mercosur EU agreement at this moment, which you know involves two trade blocks, so I mean, it's a, in that that negotiation took twenty something years to be uh, inked at a technical level. Just to, goes on to show you how uh, when it involves you know larger countries and trade blocks, uh, automatically things are a little more complicated. Now, the second thing I'll mention is you know in, in terms of specific reservations, I do believe that there are reservations about you know the impact of potential, uh, basically the impact of FTA on allowing Chinese imports coming into the region into the region of specific countries, and that's something I highlight the very top. And that's something that the Ecuadorian authorities really uh, took their time to study and, 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 and ensure in their process of negotiation with China. So that's something that we need to think about. And of course, the domestic policy of it also, you know, has to, this, all of this has to be taken into consideration of the policy of the context of domestic policy and domestic policy traditions. I would say that Argentina and in uh, Brazil, which are the two largest economy within that block and, and, and probably the two most influential actors within that block, traditionally have had a more protectionist lines of a trade policy. So that's something that we need to think about. And the third and final thing I'll mention is also political alignment, right? So like 
Mercosur as a, as a trade bloc, of course, in order for it to move forward in, in major issues, a consensus kind of building and consensus is very important. So the consensus building is absolutely critical part of any negotiation. And for that to happen, political alignment needs to be there. This, I don't think we've seen the kind of political alignment we needed for that to happen just because different political cycles within the region, Argentina and Brazil, for example, haven't always been on the same page. And when one of them is not on the same page with the rest of the bloc, I think that the entire uh, trade process and negotiation process with anything, not just trade agreement, could be significantly slowed. As we said, President Lacalle says he is determined to move forward. So this is going to be one of the stories to watch in 2023. Let's keep our journey going. And we're going to head over to Paraguay. Paraguay is one of only 13 countries around the world that still officially recognizes Taiwan. The bulk of those countries, of course, are in Latin America and South America. Paraguay's president, Mario do Bettinez, he puts a price on the ties with Taiwan and implied that if Taipei doesn't pay up, in cash, then he might consider switching allegiance to China. Here's what he told the Financial Times last year, and this is a quote. There is Taiwanese investment of more than $6 billion in countries which don't have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. We want from that $1 billion to be put in Paraguay. That will help us to build the argument about the importance of this strategic alliance with Taiwan. Pepe, we have never, in all of the China-Taiwan diplomatic disputes around the world, seen a country actually put a dollar value in public on what it's going to take. And this is very, very interesting. What was your response to that? And and do you think that uh, President Petinas is going to get his billion dollars from Taiwan? That's a fascinating question. I, I totally forgot about that. But uh, I definitely remember being surprised when I saw the uh, dollar amount, I believe it was from an FT article that, that first broke that. But, but I'll say that, you know, it, it's surprising in the formality of it, you know, coming from a president. And I, and I believe him or his office later retracted or adapted the statement a little bit. But still, I, I would say that the crux of it or the nature, the underlying nature and strategy of it is in the new one, right? I mean, we've known that countries in South America, countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, and I would say that countries in the global south in Africa are quite pragmatic when it comes to how they engage China. And that includes the China-Taiwan piece, meaning if they're their current Taiwanese allies, of course, their goal is to get the most out of that current partnership as possible. And if China is one of the bargaining ship on the table, they would not be afraid to use that. A couple examples came to my mind. Um, you know, the recent example you mentioned of the, the president's statement, investment is a big piece. And then, and in fact, let me go on a, a slight tangent there. Uh, at the very top, since we're talking about how the Americas, Latin America, the Caribbean is a little underrated uh, in, this, in the grand scheme of things of Chinese uh, engagement abroad, I'll give you one figure on the investment side. According to the China-Brazil Business Council, Brazil as a country alone attracted $5.9 billion of Chinese investment in 2021. We don't have the 2022 figures yet, but 2021 was a banner year for Chinese investment in Brazil. And by some estimate, this basically makes Brazil the single largest destination for Chinese investment globally. I don't think people are talking nearly enough about that. And for reference, you know, that 5.9 figure, that's bigger than Europe. Uh, that's bigger than the U.S., slightly lower than Europe. Unimaginable, I would say in 2016, for example, seven, eight years ago, that any countries or the region as a whole, Latin America and the Caribbean is attracting nearly comparable amount of uh, investment from China. But and, and what's interesting about that Brazil investment number is that it's really diverse. It's in tech, in agriculture, in energy, in mining. And when you look at, say, in African countries, Cobus, when the Chinese invest in the DRC, it's narrow into one sector. But in Brazil, it's spread across so many different sectors. You know, let's move on to Brazil very quickly now that we're here. Uh, talk to us about the nature of that economic relationship and where that money is going. 
Right. Absolutely agree with you on the diversification point when it comes to investment and industries in which Chinese investment has been going to. I think Brazil in general is a very unique market in our region, not just for Chinese investors. The scale of it, the size of the economy, the diversity of opportunities that's available in that market is truly impressive. So it's no surprise that, you know, China really, Chinese investors, Chinese investment and trade really start uh, engaging this particular country. Um, China has been Brazil's largest trade partner for a while. And it's uh, Brazil has been historically the largest uh, uh, recipient of Chinese investment in the region. In recent years, certainly we saw the trend that you mentioned, you know, it, it kind of graduated from just more energy intensive and solely on energy intense industries to tech and other industries that are just very exciting. And another thing I'll say on the, on the Brazil front is that we continue to see interest, and this is an important point uh, tying back to our Mercosur conversation a little earlier, we continue to see nonpartisan support within Brazil on greater economic engagement with China. And one example is basically this past administration in Brazil under President Bolsonaro, where I would say at the political or maybe even at the ideological level, there is some major disagreement. We haven't seen a uh, such a heightened tension between China and Brazil in a very long time, including very heated exchange of words on Twitter, on social media, and directly between the government officials, meaning Brazilian officials and the Chinese ambassador in Brazil. But regardless of what's happening on the political side, economic continued, the economics of it continued to advance. China Brazil trade continued to break records, and the investment figure I just threw out that's very impressive. So I expect this trend to continue down the road. I do want to come back to the Taiwan point later on at some point since I only uh, said one thing about it and know that that's something that's very important to you as well. In relation to Brazil, um, you know, we, we've seen in the last while discussions about the possible kind of inclusion of, of Argentina into the BRICS group. So I was wondering, like, what kind of like effect that might have on China-Brazil relationship and, and you know, kind of the, the kind of BRICS group as, as a whole, you know, kind of what, what are the kind of like, like Brazil-Argentina dynamics and how would they possibly affect dynamics with China? That's a fascinating question, and I think I'll answer it on three levels. One is, as you recall, it was maybe the third point I mentioned in our Mercosur conversation that you know domestic politics and domestic the, the alignment domestic politics in Mercosur is a big part of what's happening in that trade block or lack of alignment. In this particular point, at this particular point in time, there seems to be better alignment. Um, we had Lula coming in, the President Lula being just inaugurated in Brazil. We have President Fernandes in Argentina. They've they've shown strong tendencies and intentions to collaborate, and they seem to have very strong personal of friendships as well. So I'm not surprised that Brazil uh, will be interested in supporting Argentina's entry into the BRICS block or I, I believe the new development bank. So that's something I'll mention just carving back to the early point I made. Second thing I'll say is that, and this is a fascinating question you mentioned, Kobus, because the miss, this may make me think about you know something that I should have mentioned at the top, which is oftentimes we look at uh, China's engagement with this particular region. I think a lot of countries in the world at the national level, which makes sense, right? Country to country, what's China doing with Brazil? But there's so much richness beyond that level. We have the subnational level, which is very relevant in Brazil. Again, this is a continent-sized country. So for example, the city in the state of Sao Paulo has tremendous relationship with China. The, the state of Sao Paulo has its own investment attraction agency with offices in Shanghai. So that's something that's very significant. In another level, we, I would say that the subnational level probably would be lower than the national level if you think about the hierarchy of it. But one level beyond would be the multilateral level, right? And this is where we bring the BRICS conversation. And Brazil is a fascinating case study because I'm always, I've always been under the impression that a lot of these multilateral forums or fora have been more helpful for the smaller countries in the region when it comes to engaging with China. The reason is that it's much difficult for them at the country level, the country to country level, getting, let's say, a bilateral a meeting with President Xi and other senior officials in the region. This is not the case of Brazil. 
Brazil and China have standing mechanism for this high level coordination. Brazil is one of the few countries in the region that will we call that has what we call a high level working group or dialogue group. It's called Gojban, the high level commission between China and Brazil. And uh, in normal years, they convene every year, every other year to advance the public sector and private sector agenda when it comes to collaboration, could be specific trade items and, uh, and that sort of stuff. But really, we don't see a lot of other countries in the region that have that sort of mechanism with China because, you know, China doesn't have the same level of interest, I believe, in, in all countries in the region. So I think. An interesting comparison there on the multilateral level versus the country to country level is something that we need to think about. And that ties directly into the, the BRICS conversation, uh, BRICS point you, uh, you just mentioned. And third and finally, I think, you know, to this point, I want to make, we talked a little bit about trade, we talked a little bit about investment. I think another major pillar of Chinese engagement in, in the region is what, what we consider just broader development benefits, right? So these are countries that, like China itself, are in need of you know, development and financing in different, different aspects of it. China, of course, has a much bigger capacity to do that uh, financing domestically. In the case of Latin America and the Caribbean, you know, countries traditionally go to a lot of other countries, whether that's, you know, national agencies uh, in the U.S., in the case of USAID, DFC, other countries in the EU, they go to the multilateral organizations, they go to, you know, uh, the Inter-American Development Bank, the World Bank, uh, the CAF Development, Development Bank of Latin America. And now basically, you know, you have a, a third alternative, so to speak, which are the multilateral organizations, but, you know, the ones that are uh, either created by China or facilitated by China And the BRICS Development Bank, for example, is a big part of that. Uh, the current president of the BRICS Development Bank based in Shanghai is Brazilian. So I think that's another uh, potential opening opportunity for Brazilian authorities to play a bigger role in that organization to, and to facilitate Brazil's relationship with China through the lens of economic development. And of course, uh, making sure that there's regional participation, greater regional participation in that development organization. You know, Pepe, it's very interesting because when you're talking about Brazil, I'm often thinking about Nigeria. And I see a lot of similarities between Nigeria's role in Africa and Brazil's role in South America vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese. The Chinese look at Nigeria as a major market for tech. Venture capital firms have been investing there. It's a major consumer market. And in many ways, what I'm seeing in Brazil is the same thing. Companies like ByteDance, which owns TikTok, is expanding very quickly in uh, Brazil. Kuaisho, which is an online social network in China, has launched a Portuguese product in Brazil called Quai, which is really taking off. BYD, the big e-electronic vehicle manufacturer, is now expanding its sales footprint in Brazil, much the same way that they're doing in Nigeria, looking at the big consumer markets. So this is not simply an extraction relationship where basically the Chinese are only buying from Brazil, but not actually investing back into it. You said 5.9 billion. A lot of that is going into, or at least some of it, into the consumer space, which is, is very interesting as well. Since we're running low on time, let's keep going through. Cobus talked about Argentina and the BRICS. Uh, President Alberto Fernandez, boy, he is really leaning into ties with Beijing. Just this week, in fact, the two countries agreed to a $7.2 billion currency swap deal that will make it easier for Argentinian firms to trade with China using the RMB. Uh, Buenos Aires also for a while was considering a rather sizable purchase of J-15 Chinese jet fighters, which would have been the first time a South American country buys the Chinese military aircraft. The deal fell through, but it was definitely inconsistent for some time and no doubt giving folks in Washington a little bit of anxiety. And China has become a major supporter of Argentina's fight against Britain over who controls the Falkland Islands or the Malvinas Islands as they're referred to by the Argentinians. So there seems to be a romance underway between Argentina and China that we haven't seen at this intensity for quite some time or if ever. Talk to us about the blossoming relationship between Fernandez and Xi. 
Yeah, and Eric, certainly, I would say that this this has, uh, I think that this past year has been a good year for the bilateral relationship between China and Argentina for all the specific examples that, that you just mentioned. And on top of that, that even during COVID, it was last year, the Winter Olympics, right? At that point, only two Latin American Caribbean heads of states traveled to Beijing to attend the Olympics. And of course, having bilaterals then later with President Xi, one of them was President Ecuador, with whom we started off the conversation with today. And the second one with the President Fernando from Argentina. So it certainly speaks to the point you made earlier about, you know, Argentina and President Fernandez seeing China as a strategic partner in many ways. And, and I'll say that the currency swap, I haven't read into the, the latest agreement, but I believe when it, it was an expansion of the existing agreement. So it's not something completely new either. Uh, I would say that there is uh, certainly momentum to build upon the existing relationships that's, that's already had. And I would say that even under uh, President Magri, Many of whom would say that, you know, maybe this is a, a right-leaning government in Argentina, one that's relatively rare in the in the political history of Argentina in recent times. Even under that government, there was a very strong relationship with China. So this goes back to my earlier point that I would say that China, especially economic engagement with China, for many leaders in the region, this is a nonpartisan issue. This is a practical issue. This is initial economic pragmatism and countries explore that relationship and want to explore further because of that reason. So I think that's a general context I want to mention. But uh, I think... To finalize this point about Argentina, I think we'll be remiss not to mention briefly at least about the lithium. I think we're seeing tremendous opportunities in Argentina for that and not just for Chinese investors, right? I mean, this, it's a country with a lot of potential in that sector and uh, the lithium triangle in South America. Uh, it, so not just Argentina, countries like Chile as well uh, have been attracting pretty significant, you know, upwards of $1 billion, you know, big ticket investments coming out of China. So that's something I think an area to watch. And to look back to a point we mentioned earlier, is you, you kind of talked about how I really liked it. The comparison you drew between Nigeria and Brazil, I'd love to read more about that. But I think something I've been thinking more about at a big picture level is what are some of the you know main channels or pillars of Chinese engagement with the region, right? So some of those where you talked about. And in the, in the recent op-ed, I co-authored with Felipe Larraín, who's a professor at the uh, the Chilean Catholic University. He's a director also of their Latin America Center for Economic and uh, Social Social Policy and two-time Chilean foreign uh, the finance minister, of course. We, we wrote about this in the recent piece for America's Quarterly about what we saw as the four main pillars of Chinese economic engagement with the region. And we talked about trade, we talked about investment, we talked about lending, you know, specifically state-to-state lending. And finally, we talked about infrastructure and basically Chinese participating participation in, in infrastructure projects in the region. So if folks are interested, feel free to take a look at that. You know, a lot of conclusions are region-wide. Uh, the country-specific dynamics might be, and nuances might be missing a little bit, but I think it's a good place to start to get a brief overview of what's happening uh, economically between China and Latin. So as we mentioned earlier, the United States, you know, obviously <laughs> plays a massive role in, in South and Latin America. And we've seen um, people like Senator Marco Rubio raising concerns about Chinese influence in, in in the region. And I was wondering kind of what what kind of reactions you're seeing in, you know, in the in the D.C. space and also kind of what level of, of leverage the United States has, you know, in, in relation to getting, you know, South and Latin American countries to not work so closely with China. No, but excellent question, Kovas. And of course, you know, we work very closely at the Atlantic Council, specifically at the Latin America Center. We work very closely, not just with Latin American and Caribbean government officials, but also with USG officials. So happy to share my, my two cents here. And I'll say maybe three things, three things in terms of how the US government can better position itself vis-a-vis uh, -vis China in the region. And I think the first thing I'll say is, I think to summarize, I would say that the US probably, it would really benefit the, the US to have a more positive, more partnership 
based and more multidimensional agenda with the regions. And I'll explain these three points briefly about what I mean by that. Um, so starting off with the positive part of things, uh, to just contextualize what I mean by that, I think there is a major perception gap between how the Latin American and, and Caribbean regional government officials sees China and Chinese engagement in our region than how the US sees it, right? So this goes directly to your question, Kobus. I think Washington certainly sees this with certain concern. Very high level officials have expressed their concerns about that. And they generally see Chinese engagement with the region through the lens of, you know, potential risks and through the lens of competition, which is, you know, what's dominating the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China. So very reasonable from that perspective. On the other hand, you have, you know, the Latin American and Caribbean government officials. And they, to me, they continue to see China overwhelmingly through the lens of opportunities. And they, they see the upside, the upside opportunity, upside basically of engaging China, you know, the economic development benefits and the, the different four pillars I mentioned earlier, seeing those as very tangible and media. And they see the downside risk of engaging with China, which the, you know, the government, the U.S. government warns them about to be more more business and indirect. So let me establish that first. And that ties into another point, which is when we think about the conversation that, you know, the Latin American and Caribbean government officials are having on one hand with the U.S. counterparts and on the other hand with the Chinese counterparts. With the Chinese, they have easier conversations. Once again, trade, investment, uh, infrastructure, lending, development benefits, easy conversation, win-win. On the other hand, a lot of the countries, when they turn to the U.S., at least you know in recent years, the top of the agenda, some of the items on the top of the agenda have not been easy to uh, to discuss. I mean, we talked about issues like migration, which are difficult to solve. These are thorny issues politically and otherwise. So these are just much more difficult conversations. And then within that, I think, you know, when we think about all of that within that perspective, because this perception gap between uh, Latin American Caribbean perception of China and U.S. perception of China in the region, and based on, you know, this easy versus difficult conversation point I just mentioned, I think what became clear to me is that if we have to summarize true, you know, potential or dominant approaches of how the U.S. government can deal with China in the region, one is the China bad approach, which, which I think has been used quite, you know, uh, frequently, basically, you know, don't work too much with China on issues A, B, and C. This doesn't really is in, this it really is in your interest. And then I think there's another approach that we should be using more, which is the U.S. good approach, right? I'm using very sophisticated terms here. And the, and the problem there is that, you know, countries really don't like or don't don't appreciate the, U, the, the China bad approach, because as we've seen in the global south, that approach hasn't generated the kind of reaction we wanted. And that usually the question that the countries don't want to choose side, that's the first point. It's the second question they ask after, you know, receiving, receiving you know, this China bad approach is, okay, let's talk about what U.S. has to offer on the table. So it inevitably leads to the same conversation. And I do believe that the U.S. is doing a lot of constructive, important, and positive things in the region. And that needs to be highlighted in a way that's very positive, right? So shifting that agenda vis-a-vis -vis China in the region to a more positive agenda about what the U.S. is doing. Uh, it, it, I think the U.S. agenda needs to be a pro-Latin American agenda, pro-Latin American Caribbean agenda. That agenda is going to be much better received uh, by countries in the region than I would say, you know, an anti-China or China bad agenda. So that's the first point I would say, you know, first adjective positive. And the second thing I said is partnership based, you know, partners based. And that's very much related to, to the last point I mentioned. We're in a world where a lot of countries in the region really don't want to choose sides. They don't, they don't think it makes sense that they have to choose between the U.S. and China. They want to be able to work with both. So I think for the U.S. to really better position itself to win hearts and minds, you know, a partnership-based approach is absolutely important. You want to prove yourself to be the better partner, right? And, and the critical part of that is basically bringing into bringing the regional perspective into this discussion. The perception gap, gap I mentioned earlier is a big part of it. And I'll give you one example. One important talking point I think is super relevant and a valid one about Chinese engagement in the region is, you know, a certain project we see, you know, standards, is issues with standards, transparency, corruption, that sort of stuff. But it's difficult 
it, is, it doesn't translate very well when you know the U.S. government mentioned this to local governments, to regional governments through the China lens, because these problems had long existed before China. I mean, you can make the argument maybe that China doesn't help in some of these areas, but framing that as a China problem, where that China is a main part of that problem, hasn't really resonated with a lot of politicians or at least voters in the region. So that's another thing that I think this is why it's so important to bring this regional perspective into discussion. And the final thing I'll say on this partnership-based point is that at the end of the day, even if the goal is to counter Chinese influence in the region, you kind of need partners on the ground to execute that. They need to be on board. So certainly the partnership point is is absolutely important. And quickly on the final point, since we're kind of running out of time here, I think the multidimensional part, this is such a critical part. And I think this is one of the biggest U.S. comparative advantages and frankly, quite a replaceable one. Uh, when we think about this engagement with the region, uh, China has seen a tremendous increase. I mean, the region has seen a tremendous increase in its economic relationship with China. But I would say that overall, yes, there's been some political diplomatic engagement. There's been some engagement on the other side. This is a relationship that's, that's it, it, for the most part, very much focused and concentrated on the economic side of things. The U.S., I think, has a much more multi-dimensional relationship versus what I see as still a pretty one-dimensional relationship focused on economics, uh, which is what China has with the region. And I think, you know, for U.S. government officials, it really needs to think a little harder about what are some of these advantages that the U.S. is providing to the region and how to better communicate that. Because once again, a lot of things are happening in the region that are very positive and countries really welcome constructive U.S. leadership. And one example I've been thinking quite a lot about is, for example, HADR, Humanitarian Assistance and Disaster Relief, right? When And we're, we're seeing, especially in some parts of Central America and the Caribbean, where natural disasters sadly are happening with greater frequency, with devastating economic and uh, social economic consequences. When something like that happens, it's very difficult for China to be there. You know, China usually supports some of these uh, disaster relief efforts through donations. But the U.S. is the only country, you know, that has the kind of operational capacity to really conduct life-saving missions in the region. So I think in my conversations with U.S. government, officials and many of them are, are increasingly cognizant of this and doing their part to ensure that you know perhaps it's it's let's last about this china bad approach more about u.s good approach highlighting what the u.s is doing better but i do think that you know to summarize you know it would really be the u.s to to use this positive agenda a more partnership-based agenda and certainly highlighting the multi-dimensional nature of its relationship with the region uh, if it wants to better position itself in in, in, in its relationship with china uh, hopefully this will help. Well, I know that the competition with China point has been talked quite a bit about, so I didn't focus too much on that. And I want to focus more on the potential solution or uh, what I see as uh, what I see as could be potentially potentially helpful there. Pepe, I think regular listeners of our program are probably shaking their heads and rubbing their eyes in disbelief because what you have said is exactly what your Atlantic Council colleague Jonathan Fulton has said about what the U.S. should do in the Middle East. We have heard it about what the U.S. should be doing in Africa. And in many cases, the U.S. is taking a much more positive, proactive view, exactly what you're talking about in Africa. In ASEAN, where I live in Vietnam, it's the same arguments. You, you know, you're not going to compete by bashing China. It's just not going to work. So it's fascinating to hear this all over again. And it just it doesn't seem to be getting through, but maybe it will. Uh, so, Pepe, thank you so much. There is so much more that we need to talk to you about because there is so much that's going on. So we're looking forward to having you back again to update us on everything that's happened in uh, in China-America's relations over the next six months. So we'd love to talk with you once we see some of these things kind of iron out. You are a fascinating guy following this issue. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing, is there any way they can find you on social media? 
Yes, uh, I am on Twitter. I need to be, I, I had to be honest, I need to spend more time on it. So that's one of my New Year's resolutions this year. But I usually try to uh, write some op-eds in addition to my longer form publications. I try to write more op-eds for, uh, for example, Project Syndicate, World Economic Forum, uh, America's Quarterly. So you can follow my shorter form writings there in case uh, there just isn't time available to read some of the longer pieces. So one thing I'll quickly say is that, you know, throughout the conversation, I've talked about Latin America and the Caribbean kind of through like a regional perspective. Just want to highlight this one point is, you know, obviously this is a hugely uh, heterogeneous region, a lot of diversity within it. So uh, a lot of generalization obviously loses the nuance. So I encourage folks to look really into the, the details of what's happening in the country. Second, fascinating to hear about the, the comparison, the parallel from Jonathan's episode and send him my regards, please, and other regions that you guys work on. So uh, we'd love to continue that conversation. And finally, just to wrap up a point about Taiwan, which again, my apologies for diverging from that a little early. I think what we're seeing in, from countries in the region is that, you know, just f finalizing this point, it's not just that countries don't want to choose site, but now they know that they're in a privileged position to be, if they navigate the, 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 the competitive dynamics between US and China, in some cases, Taiwan as well, they can really get a lot out of it, right? So the Paraguayan example was the specific number. We've seen also previously Paraguayan navigating using this, at least in attempts to score Chinese vaccines during the pandemic. Uh, we've seen other Central American countries, for example, Honduras, talk about switching to China, and that uh, the U.S. government sent a delegation that was that was that was that was that successfully uh, persuaded the, the government otherwise. So I think countries are realizing that they're doing a good job navigating that. And I think there, uh, this is a dynamic we're going to continue to see, see down the road, especially when it comes to the Taiwan piece. Taiwan and, and the U.S. indirectly will be able to offer will be, a, will be a huge part of that discussion. But these are the three final comments I want to mention. Fantastic. We're going to put links in uh, the show notes on our website to some of Pepe's writing. We'll put links to his Twitter feed in all of the show notes. So if you want to follow what Pepe's doing, just go ahead and follow him on Twitter. Pepe Zhang, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. And we're looking forward to having you back again. And Kobus, you will be liberated from your co-working space. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the China Global South podcast. If this is the kind of thing that you really, really love to follow, then you definitely want to subscribe to the China Global South and uh, what we're doing. We produce a daily brief that's read by 25 or 26 governments every single day. Think tank analysts like Pepe in DC are reading it. Uh, scholars are reading it. And so we would love to have you join our growing community of readers. Just go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe and you'll find out all the information there. And by the way, if you are a scholar and academic, just send me an email and I'll give you a half off code that you can do use to subscribe. So let's leave our conversation there. Pepe, Kobus, thank you both very much for your time today. We'll be back again for Kobus van Staden in Cape Town. I'm Eric Olander in Lisbon. Thank you so much for joining us. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South Project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at ChinaGlobalSouth.com, where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's ChinaGlobalSouth.com.